Cancer, the diagnosis is terrifying and the treatment is often devastating because of all the side effects. But what if after you finish your treatment, you learn that your father and then your mother hear the same diagnosis? I'm Sharon Betters, the host of this Help and Hope interview. And with me today is Lynn Hartke, author of Under a Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty and Faith in the Hardest Places. And while her topic is cancer, because this is exactly what she experienced, what she shares applies to any deep loss. You're going to see that Lynn's story shows us, while just as a physical desert can be a place of desolation, it is also a place of great beauty. When God leads us into the wilderness, we find that same desolation, but we also learn that there is great beauty there. From her story, we are reminded that there are some treasures God gives in the desert that we will not experience in any other place. So welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Sharon, so much for having me today. Lynn, before we talk about your battle with cancer and how it changed changed your view of hope, beauty, and faith, tell us a little bit about your life now. Well, I am a pastor's wife of 35 years, and recently I am now also the mayor's wife in our community of Chandler, Arizona. I have four grown children, and we have four grandchildren as well. I'm actually working on book two, but we're in the still the heat of summer here in the desert. So the calendar might say, Labor Day's over, it should be cooler, but not true in the desert. So if I have a chance to get up north where it's cooler, I take it. Well, in your book, um, you talk a lot about how you went to the desert when... Mm -hmm anywhere else to go. And I hope we can talk about that a little bit, about how God used those times in your life, how it was a safe place for you to just be who you are and to express your doubts and and your frustrations and your pain. And and I have to say, um, your book is so beautiful. I, I kind of stumbled on it and I was so grateful. And I am a cancer survivor. I had aggressive breast cancer when I was 39, and that was a long time ago. But I've been cancer-free since then after very aggressive treatment. And I wish I'd had your book back then. And in fact, it uh, actually, I was crying as I was reading it because you took me right back to those moments of the diagnosis and all those feelings came rushing back. And I just want to thank you so much for your transparency and, and for using your beautiful gift of writing to bless so many of us. So How did you learn about your cancer? Because you and I kind of share that, breast cancer. How did you learn about it? And what were your first thoughts? I learned about my breast cancer through a routine mammogram. So I am now a big proponent. Ladies, get those mammograms done. And they just compared the slides from the different years and recognized some changes. And so they encouraged me to have a biopsy done. And that biopsy showed that, yes, I had cancer, uh, beginning stages of ductal carcinoma in situ. So that's one reason I say, ladies, get those mammograms done, because an earlier diagnosis just increases your success of treatment. So because it was caught early, I actually did not need to have chemo. I had several surgeries, lumpectomies, and uh, then seven weeks of radiation followed by five years of estrogen-blocking medication. When I talk to people about uh, getting that, those, that diagnosis, you have cancer, I compare it to being hit like with floodwaters. In the desert, we have flash floods, 
without much warning. And it's like that wave just comes and just knocks you off your feet. And you're trying to grapple with all this new language and trying to find your feet when everything's swirling around you. I learned I had breast cancer the same way through a routine exam and doctor said it's probably nothing, but let's get a mammogram. And back then, you know, mammograms were not that big of a deal. People didn't get them as much. And I'm so thankful for that help in finding the cancer. And I agree with you. I, I tell women, don't hesitate if, if you think there's a problem. And if there's, you don't think there's a problem, get those regular mammograms. It's our first mm-hmm. line of defense. It really is. I appreciate what you're saying about how the, the um, it's like you're pushed into this foreign country where you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, and everything is not just new, it's scary. Yeah, it's trying to take a drink out of a fire hose and the water's just rushing. And Well, on top of that, your husband's parents died from cancer. And so how was it when you told him and how did he come alongside of you? Well, yes, by the time I had been diagnosed, uh, both of my in-laws had died from cancer. My father-in-law from prostate cancer and my mother-in-law from lung cancer. And you would have thought that it would have just taken the ground right out from underneath my husband, but he always held on to hope. And even though their diagnosis had been terminal, he didn't let go of that hope that even if medically we don't get the news that we want, we still have that hope found in Christ and found in heaven. And one practical thing that he did, I had a calendar while I was Xing off my dates. He took a tape measure. So I think I had 32 radiation treatments and he hung 32 inches by his desk and he moved it up an inch after every day. So that was his counting method, a tape measure. That's fantastic. And how encouraging that had to be at some point to know that you're having watched your husband deal with the deaths of his own parents and to know that he had that experience and the way that he responded had to be a source of strength for you. But then 14 months after your diagnosis, then that fire hose comes washing over you again. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, about, about one year later, my dad was diagnosed with stage four melanoma. And a year after that, while he was still in chemotherapy, my mom was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer, which quickly digressed to stage four. And so we were all being seen by oncologists for various stages of treatment at the same time. You said in your book that your, let me make sure I have it right, your theology had no handhold for this. What did you mean by that? When I wrote that, that was, you know, in those initial moments of diagnosis, I felt like I had no past experiences that prepared me for having both parents with terminal cancer. So that that's a partially true statement because if you look, if you think of David and Goliath, for example, he would have said he had no preparation for meeting the giant. But in actuality, God prepared him when he met the lion and the bear. And so by watching specifically my parents, not just in that moment, but when I thought back of how God had been faithful to our family, God restored to me that he had been with us through that whole terrible experience. How was watching your parents deal with cancer different than for you as you were in the 
arena yourself as the patient? I found it was a completely different experience to trust my own life to God versus trusting those that I love to God. And it was a whole nother level of trust when I realized I had no control over what would happen to my parents. I can imagine the pain of kind of like when your child is sick and there's nothing you can do to Mm -hmm. make them better and you would trade places with them in an instant. And watching parents, they're the ones that are the strong ones. They're the ones that are covering and our protection and how painful and difficult that was. And I'm just thinking of you having getting slammed one, I mean, just one huge event after another. And yet here you are, you're still talking and you're still, <laughs> you're still standing. I'm sure that there were times where you didn't know if you were going to make it. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. One thing that your dad said that I thought was really special, and I thought, I want to remember this, when he was asked uh, how he was doing, he would say, I live until I die, and then my real life begins. What did he mean by that? I think I found not just with my dad, but everyone, when they have a serious diagnosis, it forces you to look at your mortality. And my dad faced it very fast, that he was willing to go and be with Jesus. And so that was his phrase. I mean, he didn't just say it once in a while. He said it every time someone asked him. But yes, he had this life that he was going to live fully. But when he died, his real life would begin. Mm -hmm. And so he constantly reminded us of eternity. I think about people of faith and, and sometimes we can look at them and say, I wish I could be like them. They probably have no struggles. They've never doubted. They've never had any kind of questions, but surely there was something your dad must have struggled with. He knew that he was, mm-hmm. was going to step over into heaven, which is glorious, but what, what did he struggle with the most? The hardest thing for my dad was the thought of leaving my mom. And so I think he would not have even done chemotherapy. But he said, I see the widows in church sitting in the back row together, and I don't want that for your mother. Mm -hmm. And so he fought it as hard as he could for two and a half years for the sake of my mom. That is a very moving picture of of, Mm -hmm. uh, your dad's love for your mother. And I remember one of the stories you told in your book about how they were looking for a place to live. And your mother said, would you be happy living here without me? I think that's what she said, something like that. And, And what was his response? She said, can you picture living here without me? Because we didn't know which one would go first, right? And he said, I can't picture living anywhere without you. And she's trying to push him to a decision. And she said, well, where do you want to live then? And he said, heaven. And you were there. What was going through your mind as you were listening to them? It was a very interesting experience to be an eavesdropper to my parents' love story. (laughs) At the end of their chapters, right? They'd maybe been a little more stoic in all my growing up years, but that was all stripped away when they both knew that they were dying and they just lived it all right in front of us. And how did, what, what are some of the teaching moments for you as you know that someday you're going to be in that last season of life for your children and your grandchildren? What, what did they teach you about how to help prepare the ones that you love for that moment when you know I'm not going to be on this earth anymore, but what, what, how did they teach you? What did they teach you? Well, I think one thing that they taught so well was to celebrate this life, hold on to it with both hands, live huge. My dad 
he bought this used white convertible uh, because it was a bucket list item for him. And we all took turns driving it around. And so, yeah, they celebrated life huge, but they always kept eternity in mind. And specifically after they had been diagnosed. And I tell people that's the biggest gift you can give your children is to not to be afraid about talking about eternity, not to be afraid about talking about end of life, because you don't want to leave your generations with questions when you're gone. And so have those hard conversations and give that gift to your children and grandchildren. I think it's really, uh, our generation is maybe a little more open to that. My parents' generation was stoic, but toward the end of, especially my father's life, we had more of those conversations. My mother had died 15 years before him, and it, it was very difficult for her to talk about those things because that was not her way of mm-hmm. expressing herself. But I think, you know, I, my husband and I uh, have been through a lot physically, and we're both 71. And so we'll joke around about, you know, when we're not here and in front of our grandkids who hate it, they don't want to say, you're not old, Grammy. What do you, don't say those things. I'm having nightmares thinking about not having you here. And I, it really makes me more intentional about helping to prepare them mm-hmm. for that moment, which is inevitable. And yet we can face it with strength and glory and hope that we may not like the, w- the way we get there, but we will. We know that we will. And our, our grandchildren and children, I love what you said about preparing, helping to prepare them for that. That's one of the best things we can pass on. You said that your mother soaked in Psalm 131, when she was struggling to trust Jesus with your dad. And I think she's, she's soaked there for herself too. How do you think that Psalm strengthened her? And how was her response to that helpful to you? Psalm 131 talks about a weaned child leaning on the breast of its mother and not being anxious for things they can't control or can't understand. And it's just a short Psalm, maybe it's four or five verses. And when I became anxious, watching my parents struggle, my mom reminded me of it, that she had held on to it during dad's illness. She was holding on for herself during her illness. I'm sure she had asked her big, hard questions. And then she came to that place of, I'm a weaned child, just resting in the arms of of God who understands when I don't understand, just as children don't always understand. Um, what a legacy, you know, how Mm. precious for uh, you to have parents that you are describing and what a legacy of faith. And yet when you were struggling with um, your mother's disease, your father's disease, you would just come out of it. And I know that for a while, every time we have a test, we wonder, has it come back? It's kind of talk about anxious. And uh, so you have all of that on you. And I know after the death of our son, Mark, I'm a pastor's wife like you. We had been in the ministry for 25 years, taught Bible studies, all of it. But in that period, I, I felt like, you know, I told women they could trust the Lord to build the broken bridges and bring beauty from ashes. But in the days following his death, I thought, I think I lied because I can't see how God is going to bring any beauty from this. And So I know that um, you wrestled with the questions of why and Mm -hmm. who, and you would often run to the desert. You're an outdoorsy girl Mm -hmm. and 
Everything is part of who you are. And But how did that help you to go to a place where, I mean, it's hard. I, hiking in the desert, I can only imagine how hard it would be, but how did that help you? Because your book is Under the Desert Sky. Well, I think one of the challenges in the, um, the day and age in which we live is that there's so much noise, so much words, so much that we're bombarded with. And the desert for me became a place of solitude where I could process things that were bigger than words. And God spoke to me in the not only the beauty found in the desert, which took me a long time to appreciate after growing up in the green of Minnesota to come to the barrenness of the desert. But this thought that uh, beauty in the desert is framed in barrenness. Mm. So there's a plant here and there's a plant there. It's not all squashed together in a garden, but each is beautiful as it stands alone. And in the desert, God reminded me of scriptures that I had memorized as a young girl one specifically in Psalm 139, that whether you're in darkness or in light, it is the same to God. That darkness and light is alike to him. And he can find us no matter where we are. If we're in a desert place, he's looking for us and will seek us out. What do you think the difference was for you in transitioning from asking why to asking, who are you? Where are you? Are you even listening? Or did, did you even have those kinds of questions? I did have those questions. And I will admit, I sometimes still have those questions in that I found I never got the why question answered. But God was faithful to answer who he was to me. And he would show me ways that he was loving me, even though my why question was not answered. And what were some of the ways that he showed you that he was there, that he was present, that he was loving you? Um, One specific way that I remember is when I was hiking. This was after my mom had died, and it was just a terrible day. And people say that grief is like uh, boiling over water, like cooking pasta on the stove. It's just boiling over and you can't get the lid on it. Well, that day, even though I was in the desert, I was just freezing cold. And so for me that day, grief was just cold. And I had gotten down in the dirt to take a photo of a plant. And I thought, you know what? I just want to stay here. I want to stay in this dirt and never get up again. But my dog was nosing me. She wanted to go on. And we came up over a rise and the hillside was covered in purple flowers, including desert lavender, which was my mother's favorite flower. And she used to tell me that when I die, God is preparing a room for me in heaven filled with purple flowers. And this was just a personal message specifically to me from God, showing his love for me in a hard, hard day of grief. I love that story. And I uh, resonate with it because after Mark's death, the passage that was so precious to me was from Isaiah 45, where he says, I'll give you treasures in darkness Riches stored in secret places so that you will know I am the Lord, your God, the one who calls you by name. And, you know, I know there are some who might question, well, the treasures have to be as big as the loss. I remember a young woman who had lost her baby had said that to me. She was angry and she said, I think God needs to give me as big a treasure that I, I have lost. Right, right. I'd explain to her that the little things that only the Lord would know, like nobody else would know that, that mm-hmm. that 
that's what was going to turn your heart toward him. And, and, and to remember that those treasures are designed to help turn our hearts toward him and to remind us that he calls us by name. And yes. you start looking for them. You start being so aware that, okay, there's a love note here somewhere that God mm-hmm. sending sending my way. And that's beautiful. What a beautiful story of a beautiful treasure in the darkness. I think that I, I you probably heard some weird things that people said to you to encourage you, like God is mm-hmm. going to do more than you can bear. And, you know, God needed your parents more than you needed them. And if you only have enough faith, you won't have to grieve. I remember somebody telling us that, um, you know, is your son in heaven? Yes. Well, then why are you grieving? You know, mm-hmm. really silly, silly thing. Right. And I think the biggest thing that we hear a lot is, and I, I know people aren't trying to be mean when they say it, they're just trying to find a way to encourage is that God doesn't give us more than we can bear. What, what do you think about that? Well, I have decided that statement is not true that we say it in a way of trying to empathize, trying to put words to the situation that doesn't have any words. Mm -hmm. And if God never gave us more than we could handle, then we would have no reason to need him. Mm -hmm. And so I feel when we find ourselves in a situation where it's more than we could handle, and in that season, it was many times each day, I would find myself with more than I could handle. That's when we run to him with open arms. Here I am again yeah. with more than I can handle. Yes. And I, I also think the, the idea of lamenting is really important for people to embrace. And lamenting is when you're turning toward the Lord with your cries and with your questions. And I remember a, a woman who had lost three sons had told me, keep running to the Lord pound on his chest, bring in your questions. He wants, he's not afraid of your questions. He doesn't need anybody to defend him. He invites your questions. And that was so freeing to me as a a Bible study teacher who should have been stronger that, no, I, I, those very things that were breaking me were taking me back to him and turning my heart toward him. And so, yeah, I'm with you on that one. He definitely gives us more than we can bear, but there is treasure in that when we recognize that in our brokenness, we are totally enveloped in his love, whether we're broken or not, but especially when we're broken, we can, we can sense it. We can feel it. Well, then as, as we close, I would like for you to imagine that you're sitting across the table from someone who has perhaps just learned they have cancer or they're struggling with cancer and they just don't know where to turn for hope. They feel hopeless. They feel helpless. They might be in shock by the turn of events in their lives. What hope can you give to that person? Well, this is what I would say to you. If you have been newly diagnosed with cancer, if you're in the middle of a cancer journey or it has nothing to do with cancer, but you find yourself afraid or feeling alone, and I would tell you this, that you're not alone in your fear and you're not foolish to hope and you are never forgotten by a God who pursues you never. Thank you, Lynn, so much for sharing your time with us and for sharing your story. And I just want to make sure that listeners that you go get Lynn's book. Uh, It is called Under a Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty and Faith in the Harshest Places. And it's available through any bookstore online. 
I just can't encourage you enough to to get Lynn's book. It, you will be so encouraged. And I couldn't put it down. There's such a beauty in the way that she tells her story. Uh, you almost feel like you're reading a novel. And I want, I want to reiterate what Lynn said, that um, it doesn't matter if your loss is cancer. It's any kind of loss. The story that she tells is would be an encouragement to anyone. And so I'm Sharon Betters, and I am the host of this interview with Lynn Hartke. And if you are not familiar with Mark Inc. Ministries, Mark Inc. Ministries produces these free help and hope resources. And you can go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you're going to find many, many free resources that are designed to offer help and hope to hurting people. Thank you so much for listening.